Welcome. I'm Alexia Hudson Ward, the Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TIE for short, a multimedia blog hosted by Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. Among the goals of this channel is the development of a corpus of resources for information professionals, undergraduates, faculty of all discipline, campus staff, and administrators at every level seeking to advance and promote research-centered diversity, equity, and inclusion insights on their campuses and within their communities. We are excited to welcome you to this season's podcast series that borrows its name from the Higher Education Academic Calendar. Therefore, you're listening to Ty's Fall Semester Podcast. Our first interview is a two-part series featuring Jordan Clark, Harvard University's Assistant Director of the Native American Program. Jordan is an enrolled member of the Wampanoag Tribe of Aquinnah, located on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. He holds a bachelor's degree in African American Studies from Temple University and a master's in International Affairs focusing on governance and rights from the New School in New York City. Jordan's professional background includes a DEI leadership position and a history faculty role in a private high school. He has also executed leadership training and professional development for high school students and adults. Our conversation for Ty focuses on Jordan's essential work to further historical insights into the longstanding and complicated connection between the Wampanoag tribe and Harvard University. One of his goals is to support documenting and strengthening the recognition and contributions of his tribe within the university and the larger community. In part one, we discuss many topics, including the Afro-Indigenous history of Martha's Vineyard and how universities can shift towards a collective decolonial mindset. In part two of our interview, we delve into how decolonializing academic libraries must go beyond our collections and why it's essential to strike a balance with using AI that is strategically cautionary and visionary with Native American history. Jordan also wastes no time demonstrating his Harvard pride, and you'll get to hear that in a few points in this interview. Now, part one of our conversation with Jordan Clark, Harvard University's Assistant Director of the Native American Program, and also be sure to check out an amazing part two of this interview as well. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your new role. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. We're happy that you are there as well. And it's my understanding, Jordan, that one of your goals is to document and strengthen recognition and contributions for your tribe, the Wapanoff tribe, with the university and the larger Massachusetts community. So would you share some of your plans with us on how you intend to achieve this goal? Sure. Yeah, I think um, 
there's so much of history in Massachusetts that is so intertwined with local native communities. And so for my community, the Wampanoag tribe of Aquina, um, growing up, you learn about colonial history. And unless you're part of the community, it might not actually be some of the voices that are centered. And so in this role, I really have a great opportunity to use that this platform to to enhance um, the voices and, and push forward some of those people throughout our history. So one of the things that we do at my office is we do an indigenous walking tour of Harvard. Um, and we talk about how native communities have been a part of the Harvard community pretty much since its founding. Um, so that's one piece. Um, I think we have the privilege of bringing in amazing speakers and running conferences at the university. Um, and my whole team is really trying to think about how do we bring in native voices and selfishly, I would love for a lot of those voices to be from our local communities um, because yes. of where the university is located. I think Harvard brings in an amazing plethora of experts and content um, experts from all over the world. Um, and I think I would love to see us do the same thing and really prioritize local voices as well, especially local native voices. And so as we think about programming, as we think about all the work that we do at HUNAP, um, we're always trying to figure out how to bring in those voices, um, both to our community, but to have them be present in the larger Massachusetts community. So it's definitely a focus of mine in the work that I do. Thank you. Thank you. And for our audience, would you share a little bit about the office, its acronym, et cetera, you know, just so that folks can follow? I know they're going to be intrigued um, with a lot of the work that you and your colleagues will be participating in. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm the assistant director of the Harvard University Native American program, and we are an administrative program um, that was that has been around in one form or another since the 1970s. And we focus on supporting Native students, faculty, and staff at the university. Uh, we do work in recruitment and retention of Native students. And we are one of the main branches that makes connections with uh, Native communities across the United States as well for the university. Thank you so much, Jordan, for that. That's really helpful and it's appreciated. So it's interesting that one of the topics that has sparked a great deal of interest among Toward Inclusive Excellence listeners and viewers is the Afro-Indigenous history on Martha's Vineyard. Um, I wrote a piece about it and it continues to be in our top 10, which is remarkable because that piece is almost two years old. And so would you briefly discuss some of this history and plans for more research insight about this community? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think there's so many intersections between the African-American experience and the Native American experience across the entire country, but especially if we look at Massachusetts and Martha's Vineyard, um, whether you're talking about enslavement, which was a massive experience for both local Native communities um, and also for the African-American community, those two pieces of history are, are, are definitely intertwined at the same point that uh, enslaved people are being brought from the continent of Africa to this continent. Um, Wampanoag people and other indigenous people are being taken down to Barbados and enslaved in other Caribbean communities as well. Um, yes. Harvard itself um, in the 1700s, uh, the presidents of Harvard owned slaves. Um, some of those were indigenous, some of those were African-American. Mm. And so you have these people in the same spaces as well throughout uh, the United States history. When we look at 
the Wampanoag people, when the Dred Scott decision came down in the Supreme Court, the Wampanoag community was one of the first to publicly say they would take in um, escaped enslaved people. Yes. One yes. of the arguments that was made against the Aquina tribe during their federal recognition fight in 1986 was that they were too intermingled with African-Americans to be a distinct Native American tribe. So there's so many touch points that connect local Native communities to the African-American community. Um, and Martha's Vineyard is one of the places where those two communities have long-standing histories and contemporary um, experiences and really strong communities. So if you spend the summer on the vineyard, you will see Black-owned businesses, you will see Native-owned businesses, you will see people um, living their lives in conjunction with one another. And so it's definitely an interesting place being kind of the small island that maybe people haven't heard of, if, or if they have, it's for very particular reasons um, that hold such rich history between these two groups of people. Yes, absolutely. And I want to expand upon several of the really important points, Jordan, that you just made. And so one is this idea, and it's not an incorrect idea or assertion, but it's out there nonetheless that Martha's Vineyard is like this posh enclave, right? Like it's where the elite go to play or, you know, to hang out. And unfortunately, a recent um, Florida's governor politicized a lot of what was happening in relationship to our current immigration challenges and, you know, did what he did. And the community surrounded those individuals who were transported um, to the island without their knowledge. And it just it harkened back to so many things that you said around the Native communities and the African-American communities there really embracing each other, particularly in time of crisis and in need. And one of the other points that you raised was talking about Aquina. And I know that at one point there was a little bit of controversy around renaming what was at once referred to as Gay Head, changing it to Aquina. And there's still some, you know, dialogue points and discourse around that. So I'd be interested in hearing you expand a little more on, you know, what efforts are really being taken place, really taking place currently around making sure that not only that history is preserved, but that it's cascaded and shared more widely. Sure. Well, this is a great opportunity for me to shout out really great work at the Aquina Cultural Center. So if you go to Aquina um, and you go to the cliffs, there's an amazing museum that's curated by the Wampanoag tribe of Aquina that talks about our history, um, but will often definitely connect with African-American history that's happening on the island in conjunction with the native tribes, because there's the misconception that native tribes or native Americans are a racial group, when in reality, we are sovereign right. nations. And so somebody's racial or ethnic makeup is not necessarily the marker of their membership into that space. If you are French, your ethnicity and your uh, race should not be a component of your citizenship. It should be the same for native tribes. And so um, people's out outward appearance should not be the thing that dictates whether they are native or not, but it's their connection to their community and the way in which that community um, kind of measures membership, right? And those are complicated too, but right. The, yes. But the Aquina Cultural Center is an amazing place that talks about the history, but not just about the history, but amplifies voices today. So on a regular basis, they are hosting events, bringing in 
members of the community to talk about the history, their expertise, the knowledge that they're passing down, and all of that um, for any Native community, but especially ours, is paramount to continue the continued survival of who we are in our community. And so that knowledge, that history, that really meaningful information is, is being passed down to younger generations. If you think about our language reclamation project, um, we have individuals who are the first bilingual speakers of our language and English in 300 years. Um, and that only happens with really strong work done in the community. So in Aquina and in Mashpee, um, a lot of really great work is being done. And when you travel around the Cape and the islands, there are Wampanoag words everywhere. Um, yes, people just is. don't talk yes. about it. Every street name, all these things. But um, but what's missing is the cultural connection and the ownership of the people of that place. And so I think the really strong work that's being done in these communities is to make those connections and bring back kind of the pride and the ownership of that space and place, um, not just yes. having it being token names of streets and things like that. Yes, yes. No, thank you for that. And and one of the other points that you've raised that I appreciate you diving into it very early is at times the anti-Blackness that has arisen either at the hands of the government or sometimes in the context of sovereign nations and how the Wampanoag, and you know, correct me if I am wrong, was considered to be too African mm -hmm. or had too much African blood coursing through its you know, historic veins as a tribe, that there was even some challenges around acknowledging the Wampanoag tribe as a nation and as a quote unquote legitimate Native American tribe. I have always found that fascinating. Um, so could you talk a little more about that with our audience, to our sure. audience? Yeah, so um, if you are a federally recognized tribe in the United States, there are parameters put on you by the federal government that make it mandatory that you have some form of control of your membership. Um, and that mm. takes many different forms. What's interesting historically, at the same time as this idea of blood quantum, the measurement of blood for Native Americans yes. to be deemed Native, um, is happening in parallel with the one drop rule, right? And so you have these two communities yes. that are being treated vastly differently um, in terms of how they're being counted and sorted by the federal government, um, but having very real generational impacts of that, right? If you have a, a population that you deem as your labor source, you want more of those people to exist, right? So the one drop rule gets right. created to basically make it so anyone that they deem can be identified as black and thus enslaved, right? It's right, inconvenient right. when you have the original population of your country present and you want that population to decrease. And there's many different ways the federal government did that. But this idea of blood quantum was one of the ways to kind of whittle down those populations. So unless you were going to be very intentional about who you marry and the children that you have, you could potentially be creating offspring that do not fit those rigid restrictions. So the Wampanoag tribe of Aquina, our membership is based on lineage. So you have to you have to be able to prove your lineage back to a census from the early 1800s. It's not a perfect mm -hmm. system, but it takes away that idea of like who you marry dictates um, or who you have children with dictates whether your offspring and their then the generations following will be deemed citizens of your nation. And I think that is very conscious in terms of the history of the Wampanoag tribe to 
encompass all of the people that come from from this group. Um, and again, there are still problems with that, but but it addresses it in that way. So you're not talking about race. You're not talking about this idea of being able to measure somebody's blood, which has no scientific basis, um, and that somebody can be all these different ethnic and racial groups and yet still be a member of this nation. Yes, yes. And and thank you for raising that because I still think that it's very much embedded practice, particularly within North America, to attempt to ascribe ethnicity, race, et cetera, by phenotype alone. So this is how you look. So then therefore you should be in this box. And so while I hear you that, you know, the work that you and your tribe continue to do is evolutionary. It is a, I think it's a really important start to elevating this important discourse, you know, to ensure that we are encapsulating all of the important aspects of Native American, African American history and situating that within the broader context of the complications of American history and classification. It's fascinating. Definitely. I would agree with that. And um, I want to pivot a little bit. It has something, my next question has something to do with classification, but it's really situated in this broader idea around the colonialized mindset versus decolonialization, um, respectively within higher education. You know, we hear some pieces and parts around this, and I know that There are many places that are attempting to take on this really critical work. And I know that one of the efforts that you've embraced specifically as a part of your departmental plan is to move Harvard as much as possible towards what you all describe as a collective decolonial mindset. And so would you share what does this look like on campus and how can other institutions shift towards achieving a similar mindset? If, if as much as possible, if possible. <laughs> sure. Um, so I like the idea of a decolonial mindset because the conversation around decolonization is actually pretty straightforward, right? To make something decolonial is to eradicate and get rid of colonial structures. So for an institution to decolonize, it would need to dismantle itself and give its resources and its land back to the original inhabitants. So that isn't a goal for most institutions, right? It's not realistic. However, if we think about how do we create a decolonial mindset, we start to strip away some of the things we've learned from a colonial system and structure. Because we all are products of the systems that we that we grow up in and we are part of. And so we live in a, in a structure that uplifts colonial ideology, history, thought process, um, and Beyond the problematic pieces of that, it limits us to wealth of knowledge from other communities that could solve issues that we're facing today. And so when I speak with people at the university, when I speak with students, um, when I speak with the communities, I talk about it as a collective benefit. Um, if we're talking about something like climate change and we're only looking at that from a Western or colonial perspective, it limits our ability to come up with solutions when there are probably and definitely are Uh, knowledge and wisdom from other communities like native communities that have been dealing with this land for tens of thousands of years in a way that we aren't seeing dealt with in the same way. Right. And so I, I start with that because I think there is a collective benefit for everyone to take on this work. It's not just benefiting native communities. Um, 
I also think that it's about centering different voices. And so when you tell the story of Thanksgiving, that is strategic, right? When you talk about pilgrims right. and Indians, when you talk about that being the founding of our country, that centers certain voices and perpetuates very uh, real values that maybe don't match everyone's perspective, right? Um, when we, and mythologies. Exactly. Right? So, yep. And, right? <laughs> and I was just about to say, um, for a person who never stepped foot on this continent, Christopher Columbus holds a lot of weight and space in our communities. That's not haphazard, right? That Because he represents right. a myth that, that the country wants to push forward and it becomes our collective understanding. And so a decolonial mindset is shifting and changing that. And it can be something as simple as changing the words you use in a sentence. Christopher Columbus discovered America. Christopher Columbus colonized America. Sets us all off on two very different paths of conversation and understanding. Another great um, example I use is if you go to Mount Washington in New Hampshire, there's a sign that talks about the first person to summit Mount Washington. People pass that sign, like thousands of people every year pass that sign and probably don't think twice about it. But if you look at it from a decolonial mindset, there's some really interesting parts of that sign. One, it says that he was partially led by native people. If he was partially led by native people, then other people maybe summited it before him. Second, thinking about right. so Can that's you like say the, that again. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> like that's the first piece, right? Like if he's being guided by other people, they probably have some knowledge that he does not. How did they get it? Second is what is the value of summiting a mountain? That is a very Western concept. A lot of Native tribes have very spiritual and culturally important spaces. Some of those being high peaks, so they do not summit those places because. That is not in their value system. And so, again, it's not just about the hypocrisy of that being right in front of your face without seeing the questions from it, but it's also putting into question the values that we hold. How do you name something that we call that mountain Mount Washington in the Algonquin language? That is not what it was originally called. Most Native American languages, when they name something, it's descriptive. It gives you information about that space so you know how to navigate it or stay away from it. We don't name things after people and, and people who conquered things. That's not the same concept. And so when we think about a decolonial mindset, it's really challenging ourselves to look at things in a different way, ask different questions, and, and challenge the values that we've been taught that maybe don't benefit us in the future. Yes, no, thank you. Um, you said so many powerful pieces in, in your statement that I'd like to iterate on <laughs> a little further. So this this notion around the decolonial mindset and then how that is operationalized, you know, on both the academic and administrative sides of an institution, you know, you raised some really important points around how do we center certain experiences and how do we center certain individuals, right? And so the balance of that is complicated because one of the things that our institutions are also very firm on is documentation, right? So things have to be, and, and that is not the case with indigenous communities or other communities of color 
through which most of the knowledge is transferred through some form of a oral tradition or other types of written expressions that don't easily translate into Old English and now what we would prescribe as American English, right? So how do you walk people through that complexity, Jordan, that there is real value in relationship to the elevation of the oral practices and other forms of material documentation that come out of these communities and to honor that as much as you are, as we honor in the academy, the traditionally prescribed documentation. Sure. Yeah. I think it's really challenging because yeah, like from a Western view, the written word is the measure, right? And so when you write a research paper, there's a clear hierarchy between even the written word, right? A blog versus a journal versus a textbook versus a peer reviewed journal, right? Like we learn these things in academia. um, But again, when we think about it only from that perspective, we limit ourselves to other knowledge bases. And so my goal is not to eliminate that system, but to to put it next to other systems, right? So when I have a conversation with an elder in my community, I am gaining knowledge and wisdom that is going to not only perpetuate or to propel me into the future in terms of being able to navigate the world in a more meaningful way, but then I hold the knowledge and the obligation to then pass it on to somebody else, right? To, to the next generation. And so there is a value in that. And even in Western societies, that is a component that we see. There are familial connections that people have from all over the world in trading knowledge this way. And so I see it as an important piece of who you bring into your community to share that knowledge, that it doesn't have to be the person who wrote the book that is now like on the top 10 bestsellers list. But it can be an elder from a community that holds a knowledge that they might be the only person who still does that, right? When you talk about Native American languages, there are so many communities where there's a handful of people who are still fluent Native speakers. And there are tribes who are doing everything they can to record those people to get that information down so it's not lost when they pass on, right? And so... For us and our and our work um, at HUNAP, it's really thinking about how we curate our programming and how do we partner and push the schools here to, to reimagine the people they invite onto campus, um, to really ask the students to challenge themselves in valuing sources, right? Um, it doesn't mean that the story you hear from a friend is the same sto- same thing as when you write your research paper, but there are avenues that you can take to expand your knowledge base to become a more well-rounded student and human. Um, And I think that's the component. I think oftentimes people think when you're asking for something new, you're asking the eradication of of the thing that they value. And, And the piece that I hope people hear from this is that it's not an eradication of the value system of the written word. It's putting it on the same level as these other knowledge bases as well. Um, And that's not a loss. That's a gain for everyone. Yes, yes. Jordan, thank you so much for this part one of two of our conversation, because the next part is going to dive into the work of my colleagues, archivists and others. And we're also going to have some interesting conversations around what's happening with AI and how you see the future and the current state 
in relation to your work. And also, you know, you touched on open access and, and I want to have some conversation with you about that in part two as well. So thank you so much for this part one and stay tuned for part two. This is going to be a, a cool conversation as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Toward Inclusive Excellence Fall Semester Podcast with Jordan Clark, Harvard University's Assistant Director of the Native American Program. Be sure to catch both episodes, part one and two, of our amazing conversation with Jordan. I encourage you to sign up for reminders of new content releases and to follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Also, check us out on LinkedIn and TikTok. Thank you so much for your support. Be well.